Well, good evening. It's uh, wonderful to be with you this weekend. Uh, what a delight to study God's Word with you. It's encouraging to me to see that you want to do that. Um, so uh, let's pray again. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So, the book of Revelation, very quickly, right? Here we go. Just, just a couple introductory words. Who's the author of this book? We're told it's John. I think that's John the Apostle. Uh, secondly, uh, when was this book written? There's some debate on that. You, you could argue that it was written in the uh, 60s. Some people argue that. But uh, I, I believe that it, it, it is written at a later date. That, that's the majority view, probably in the 90s. Uh, an early church father, uh, Irenaeus, argued that. I think that's the most reasonable understanding. But what I'm saying doesn't depend on that later date. Um, so uh, thirdly, thirdly, I should say, this book is apocalyptic. Now, I could talk a long time about that, but, but by apocalyptic, I mean symbolic, especially. And that, that doesn't mean it's not real, okay? It's, it's, there, but it is, it is an apocalyptic genre, if I can use that word. And I think you'll see how I understand it as we go. We recognize right in the church, not different people have different understandings of this book, probably in this room. But uh, we, uh, within the circle of orthodoxy, we love each other, right? We'll have a discussion on the millennium. We'll have different views, but uh, we, we're all doing the best we can. So you have, you have the outline uh, before us, uh, before you, I mean, uh, so you can see I've, I've split the book into, well, how many, how many sections have I split it into? I forgot myself. It's maybe 11 there. So we're just gonna we're gonna just march through it section by section. We begin with the introduction to the book. We see. By the way, I won't answer every question on here necessarily. I mean, I have comments. I don't know if I'll get to all that. We'll see. But we see the book begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Of course, the book the book is named after this first phrase, right? The revelation. A revelation is an unveiling. I think that first phrase is very significant because the, we, we see that this book comes from Jesus Christ, and I think it's about Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing I want to say about Revelation. This is a Christ-centered book. This is a Christ-centered book. You know, Martin Luther, who could be kind of funny, he complained a little bit about the book of Revelation. He complained a revelation should reveal something. In other words, he didn't think it would reveal something. Uh, at least that day he didn't think it when he said that. And, uh, but we're told right here re the revelation reveals what? Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus Christ is the very center of, of our faith. So we see, you know, he wrote this book. Notice, notice uh, John wrote this book. We notice in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Well, we won't do that tonight. <laughs> we don't have time to read it all. But blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So, you know, the second thing I want to say is this book is practical, right? This, this book is not just meant to fill our minds, but it's meant to be kept. So we'll see what he has in mind by keeping what's, what's written there. But it's not... It's, it, it was written for a practical purpose. Then, if we, if we, if we look at verse, verse 4, John writes to the seven churches of Asia, and we'll see those seven churches as well in chapters 2 and 3. Those, those churches are in today in the country of Tur Turkey. So it was written to readers who lived in the first century and they're suffering, right? They're going through hard times, uh, especially the, the Roman government is uh, oppressing them and persecuting them. So uh, one, one of the things I want to say is, and there, there's a little parting of the ways here, Revelation was written not first to us, but to them. Now, it is God's word to us, and I think we can understand it, but I think they understood the book as well. So 
That, don't, that doesn't mean they understood everything. But we don't understand everything either, right? So I think, I think, I think they understood it. I think they grasped the, the message that was given because it was written to them in their particular situation in which they lived. They were real people facing real difficulties. Then notice, notice verses four through six. This is very, very beautiful. And I, I'm going to read those verses and make comments as I go. What I want to say, though, is verse, verses 4 through 6 is very Trinitarian. In fact, we have no other greeting like this in the New Testament. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. So grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That is God the Father, I think. Going back to Exodus 3. By the way, this, this book is infused with the Old Testament, right? All, all kinds of allusions to the Old Testament. So I think he's thinking here of Exodus 3, verse 14. Yahweh reveals himself to Moses. I am who I am, right? But, but notice here we have... We could, we could meditate on this all night, right? It's the God who is. He's, he's almighty God now, who always was, and, and who is to come. Just because it says who is to come doesn't mean that it's talking about Jesus, right? There's a sense in which the Father comes with the Son as well, right? And then, and then the, third, the third person, and it's from Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, right? He, he describes Jesus as the faithful witness. On earth, Jesus was a faithful witness. Why, why does he say that to the readers? Because they're also called to be faithful witnesses, as their Lord was. The, Jesus suffered too. Jesus was a, a faithful witness in his suffering, and he's the firstborn from the dead. Again, he's conquered death. He rules over death. Some of these, some of these readers will be put to death for Jesus' sake. And he's reminding them death has been conquered through, through Jesus. And, and then Jesus is also the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's sovereign. Is Rome the final authority? No, absolutely not. The final authority is Jesus himself. And then, then this little, sec, the seven spirits who are before his throne. So, uh, some commentators say, well, those are angels. And that's certainly possible. Angels are often called spirits, but I don't think that's right here. I think it's definitely referring to the Holy Spirit. Here's my fundamental reason. Grace and peace only come from God. You, we never read, we never read in the New Testament, grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the Apostle Paul, right? Because the Apostle Paul can't give grace and peace. We never read in the New Testament, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the archangel Michael. No, grace and peace always come from, from God and Jesus Christ. So I think we have a clear reference to the Holy Spirit here. Wait, are there seven Holy Spirits? Well, we, we, we encounter right away the symbolic character of this book, right? The number seven is a number of perfection. Many, many examples of seven in the Old Testament, beginning with the creation, circling Jericho seven times. On and on and on it goes. So, no, it's, it, it stands for the, 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 the fullness and perfection and uh, the completeness and infinity of the Spirit. So, grace and peace to you. Yeah. So, this is a very strong Trinitarian statement, isn't it? Grace and peace to you from God the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and and from, from Jesus Christ. So, what do we say about the book of Revelation? This is a God-centered book, right? And those readers needed, as we need, what do you need every day? Grace and peace. So, do you pray for other people? Do you think, what do I pray for them? I don't, maybe I don't even know them. Well, you can always pray this prayer. Grace and peace. It's all over the New Testament. So, the, the, it is also to be imitated by us. We can pray this prayer. Grace and peace from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. So, now, we're looking at verse 5. What does he say about the Son? To him who loves us. That, that's present tense. I think that's important. To him who loves us 
and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. So the cross, what's Revelation about? I always tell my students, it's about the cross. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's right here at the beginning. Jesus Christ loves us. How do we know he's loved, he loves us? He's given us of his life, and he's liberated us. He's freed us by his blood. He's, he's redeemed us so that we, we belong to him, and we, we now are God's kingdom. We're God's priests. We, we mediate to the world what Adam and Eve were to mediate to the world, right? Adam and Eve were priests, kings, and now, and now that's our calling, and that's our privilege through Jesus Christ. So we see in verse 7, quoting Daniel 7 and Zechariah, that Jesus is coming again with the clouds. That's a big theme in this book, of course. And I think he's saying there he's going to come, he's going to come in in judgment. So we, we move on. Verses 9 through 11, John identifies himself and talks about his situation. John himself was persecuted and suffering on the, the island of Patmos because of his witness to the gospel. Ver, verse 10, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is Sunday. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? John, John's not saying, you know, a minute ago I was in the flesh, but now I'm in the Spirit. He's not saying that. What he means is I, the Holy Spirit had come upon me for revelation, right? So we see this often in the Old Testament. So it's the prophetic Spirit coming upon him, he, and he's about to receive revelation. So that's a major theme. If we think about the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation, he's the, he, he's the Spirit of revelation who reveals and teaches us about God. And then we see the seven churches to which it is written. But I want to turn, because we're flying, right? I want to turn to verse 12, because that's very significant. I turn to see the voice, verse 12, speaking to me. John, this is a vision, right? And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. There's that number seven again, right? And we're going to be told, right, that lampstands represent the churches. So this is a symbolic book because the church is to be what? The light of the world. So the, the churches are to illuminate the world with the glory of the gospel. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. Anybody who's read the Bible would immediately think of Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and receives a kingdom. And they would think of the Gospels where Jesus is often called the Son of Man as well. He's, so he's clothed with the long robe. Now, now what should we do with this description? This, I, I've seen, I don't know if you've seen this. I've seen people draw this picture. Have you seen that? Uh, this is not a literal picture, though. This is, not, this, is, this is full of symbolic language, right? He's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, we don't have time to look at Old Testament references, but that's the way priests were dressed. So what is he saying? He's, he's, a, he's a priest, right? And, and we've already seen this theme where he atones for our sins. So it's not that Jesus literally has a long robe and a golden sash. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now, I think this one's really interesting. So, if you flip over really quickly to Daniel 7, because this one, I, I, you know, we don't usually have time to do this, but we, we just got to look at this one because it's so fascinating. Because that comes from Daniel 7, or if you want to just listen to what I say, that's fine. But we look at Daniel 7. That's the chapter where the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. But when we read Daniel 7, verse 9, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, this chapter 7, verse 9, and the hair of his head like pure wool. But then we turn to Revelation, and John tells us it's the Son of Man whose hair and head are like white wool. Wait a minute, did John forget what 
Daniel said? Because in Daniel 7, you with me? In Daniel 7, it's not the son of man who has the white hair and the white, and it's, it's the ancient of days. Was, was John a sloppy Bible reader? Of course not, right? What is, what is John telling you? John is telling you that Jesus is fully divine, right? He's saying what is true of God, of God the Father is also true of the Son of Man. That is intentional. He's instructing the readers. And what is, what is the white uh, hair and symbolize? Probably his eternity. He's everlasting. And, 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 and wisdom. He has inf- infinite, infinite wisdom as well. The Son of Man. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. So this image is going to continue throughout the book. No, his eyes really aren't like light bulbs, right? Literally. But the point is that he sees all. Again, his omniscience, right? And we're going to see that his eyes shine, especially in, in judgment, in seeing where people are falling short. His, uh, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit hard to know what he has in mind here for sure. Perhaps his, perhaps his purity with feet like burnished bronze, but, but perhaps also he's suggesting that, he, that with his feet he crushes his enemies. He destroys those who oppose him finally. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Those are the angels, right? From his mouth came a two-edged sword. That stands for the word of God. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So this is a glorious picture. John doesn't just come up to him and say, hello, right? He, what happens? We're not surprised. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John, John faints straight away, being in the presence of this glorious Son of Man. But Jesus, as the Son of Man, lays his right hand on him, saying, fear not, fear not. So that's the word for the church. That's the word for you. You know, who knows what's to come in your own life, in the world, in the coming years? It is a very, a very scary place in many ways, right? Uh, but the word of God to us is fear not. That's the word to them. It's the word to us as well. And the reason given is, I am the first and the last. That, that comes from Isaiah Isaiah 44, other passages. In, in, in Isaiah, that is said of Yahweh. And, and what does Isaiah emphasize again and again? If you haven't read Isaiah, read it. What does it say again and again? I am the first, I am the last, fear not, there's no other God. No other book of the Old Testament emphasizes more than Isaiah that there's only one God. Again and again and again. Yahweh is the first, he's the last, and he rules over everything in between, right? But that's true of Jesus as well. You know, one of the contributions of Revelation is it has a very high Christology. What do I mean by that? A very high doctrine of Jesus Christ. Well, that's not so surprising if it comes from the Apostle John. Read the Gospel of John, right? So, you know, there are indications here of the deity of Christ just tucked into the story, right, in ways that we can easily miss. But here it is. Jesus is the first and the last. He rules over all of history. He rules over your life, my life. So there's no reason to fear. And, and I'm the living one. But, and I love this next line. Giving, he says, the living one. I died. The juxtaposition there. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. And, and as a human being, I died. I died. That is a remarkable statement, isn't it? I died. But behold, I am alive forevermore. That's true of Jesus, but isn't he also saying to the church, that's your destiny as well. Unless Jesus comes first, you're going to die. But you're going to live forever if you belong 
through Jesus. Because Jesus has what? He has the keys of death and Hades, and he's going to unlock those doors, isn't he? He's going to unlock the doors of death and Hades, and, and, and we'll, everyone who belongs to him will be free. So then John is told to write, and then we see these letters. We see the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. So um, there's a pattern in these letters that I want to talk about. We can't talk about every church here, but we'll talk about some. The, the, the pattern, I'm just looking at my notes here, the order varies slightly. Not all the elements are present in every letter, but first let's look at the pattern since we can't look at all seven. First, in every case, the letter is addressed to the angel of the churches, the angel of the church. Now, what in the world is that? I don't know for sure. It's pretty hard to know. Some people even want to say it's the pastor, and Aubrey is definitely an angel, right? <laughs> but I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's referring to the pastor. Every time the word angel is used in Revelation, every other place, it's clearly a heavenly being. So it, it, this, the, uh, scholars have written a lot about this. I've read a lot about it, but it's still hard to be sure what's going on here. Not everything's very clear. Uh, I would argue, I have it in my notes, that the angel sort of represents the spirit of the churches or something like that, but I wouldn't die for my interpretation of what the angel, it's, it's hard to be sure what, what's going on there. Secondly, some aspect of the vision of Christ, the vision I just read, right, in verses chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, some aspect of that vision is related to the churches. Um, or in a few cases, there's some other truth about Christ, but something about Christ is related to each uh, the churches. Third, third, uh, the, church, the churches are encouraged. The churches are encouraged, except for, except for Sardis and Laodicea, the fifth and seventh church. They don't get any encouragement. So, uh, you know, we begin, we begin to see, you know, there's problems going on in the churches. So, but most of the time there's encouragement. Uh, fourthly, I uh, there, there's a complaint about each church. Actually, look at point B. There's no complaint. There's no complaint regarding Smyrna and Philadelphia. So, right, two churches get no encouragement. Two churches, no complaint, right? But most of the churches, there's a complaint. So I think it's right to say most of the churches, most of the churches are struggling. And... Uh, if, if, if we were to characterize what's happening in the churches, how would we describe it? There's conflict with the world, conflict with the world, and then the churches are compromising, right? Conflict, those are the two C words. There's conflict and there's, and there's compromise going on. So, so the churches are called upon to repent. There's a threat of judgment. There's the promise to those who conquer or overcome. And there's a call to hear what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. So, yeah, we'll do, we'll do, we'll see how many of these we can do. But uh, oh, one, one other thing I want to say, I, I think this is significant. The, the, the longest uh, letter of these seven letters is to Thyatira in the middle. So I, so I think that's intentional. So the, the, it, Thyatira kind of captures you know, what's happening in the churches. So we'll be sure, we'll be sure to look at that one. But uh, let's, let's start with, with Ephesus, right? So we, we can do this fast. He's writing to the angels. It's, it's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars stand for the angels, right? And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. So wh what is he saying? Jesus has fellowship with the churches, right? He knows what's happening in the churches, he's walking amongst our churches, isn't he? He knows what's happening. He's having fellowship with the church. He, he, walks, he walks with us. And then he says, he, he encourages them. I know your works. You're working hard. You're enduring. You can't, you don't put up with those who are evil. And you're testing. You're testing and rejecting false teachers. There's people who claim to be apostles. They're not. This church is 
theologically discerning. That's important. Theological accuracy matters. Truth matters. This church cared about that. You ought to care about that. And I, I think you do. You're here, right? You don't come to a conference like this unless you care about the truth. So theological accuracy matters. We see verse 6, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. It's a little bit hard to know what the Nicolaitans were saying exactly. We don't have to worry about that, but to know that they're false they're false teachers. And, and so these people are enduring. They've not grown weary. There's a lot to like here. But, verse 4, they've lost their first love. They've lost their first love. That's the complaint. Love for God or love for people? Hey, this is the Apostle John. What does he say in 1 John? They go together, right? You love God, you love, you love, you love the brothers and sisters. So, so I think we can say that the first, the, the freshness and radiance and beauty of love for the Lord has faded for them. They're, 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 they're good doctrinally, but, um, but not, not uh, spiritually. Spiritually, the, the life is uh, receding in them. So, th so this is a very important matter, isn't it? And it's a word for us, right? Have you lost your first love, right? That's the, the, he's writing this also for our edification. So he says, remember and repent. Do the works you did at first. By which I'm, there's the re repetition of the word first there. May your works be animated by that love, the love that was there at the beginning of your Christian life. You know, there's a recognition. Life is hard, right? We go through a lot. And, uh, and our love for Christ and for others can dampen. And we, we, we need to turn, if that's happening, and ask to be re renewed. He went, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. Isn't that interesting? All the churches need to hear that. this. We need to hear it. And I think it's very fascinating that Verse 1, these are the words of Jesus. But then in verse 7, these are also the words of the Holy Spirit. The words of Jesus are the words of the Spirit as well. The Spirit is speaking to the churches. The Spirit is a spirit of revelation, of, of declaring God's truth. And finally, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says, you must conquer and overcome. By God's grace, trusting in Christ, right? Not by your own works, but it's the tree of life. You must conquer to enjoy eternal life, right? Eternal life is at stake here. He doesn't say, well, you can just stay where you are. It's no problem, no worries. No, this is important. You must conquer to partake of the tree of life. That is, I don't think that's literal, some people might think it is. I think it's just a way of saying, speaking of eternal life. You, you must conquer to enjoy paradise. So that's, that's our first letter. Let's do the second one. Let's do, well, let's do Smyrna. And so, to the angel of the church at Smyrna, the words of the first and the last. Okay, that's picked up from Isaiah, right? Jesus is the first and last, rules over all of history. And isn't it interesting, he said he died and he came to life. Now, that's very interesting because the church at Smyrna is going to suffer, right? We're going to see this. So, Jesus died and came to life, and he says that to encourage this church because this is a good church. No, no problems. Here, here's the encouragement. I know your tribulation. I know the, you know the word tribulation. Only Christians use that word anymore, I think. You know, I've never talked to anybody in society who says I'm really suffering tribulation. But uh, the word means pressure. Even in the Greek, really, it has this idea of being pressed on. I know, I know the pressures of your life, he's saying, right? And, and your poverty. I think that's literal poverty. But he says, but you're, but you're spiritually rich. And, and you're being slandered by those who say they are Jews and they're not. They're a synagogue of Satan. Now, I find this is just fascinating to me because I think they really are Jews and they're really in the synagogue, Right? And, and probably what's happening, the Jews, you know, the Romans didn't like the Jews much either. So the Jews are saying, hey, 
the, the Christians were, were not identified with the Christians. Jude, Judaism was a legal religion. Go after them, not us. <laughs> the Jews are probably reporting on the Christians. And uh, they're, uh, this is not a hate, hate, hateful towards the Jews. The Jews are oppressing uh, the believers, right? And uh, he says they're not really Jews. They're not spiritually Jews. True Jews, who are the true Jews? Christians are true Jews, right? They say they're Jews, they're not really. They say they have a synagogue. It's not a true synagogue because it's not a gathering in Christ's name. This, it's actually, he doesn't say this so we'll hate them, right? But he says actually it's a gathering of Satan. They're against God. They're slandering you. They're, they're getting you in big trouble. Well, what kind of big trouble? He says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. What, the devil, literally, the devil's going to come down physically and throw him into prison? Well, yes, we all know that's not what it's saying, right? He's saying, he's saying probably the Jews are going to inform on the authorities, and the authorities are going to throw you into prison. So the devil, right there, synagogue of Satan, the devil is working. What's he saying? Through the Jewish community. That's what he's doing. And he says, trouble's coming. Trouble's loom looming. The, the, you, may, you will be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Big parting of the ways here in terms of how you interpret this. Well, I was taught early on, yeah, you'll get, be in prison a literal 10 days, then you'll get out. I don't think that's what John means. But Make up your own mind. I think 10 days is symbolic for the suffering in this life is short. But I don't think he's saying, I promise you, you'll go to prison and then you're going to get out. Some people interpret it this way. I'll tell you why. The very next thing he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. I think he's saying, you just might be put to death. You might die. I don't think he's saying, you'll certainly get out. No. No, they're going to throw you into prison and who knows what's happening and Jesus isn't promising you'll escape. No, that, no it's not like that. What, do you, what is he promising? I died and I came back to life and you will too. And we have brothers and sisters, even today, suffering and being put to death, right? Pray for them. Do you pray for them sometimes? Hopefully you do. You think of them even if you don't know them. We pray that they'll endure. And we don't know what will come for, to us. And it, be faithful in the death and I'll give you the crown of life. That, what's the crown of life? Eternal life, right? I'll reward you. What, what's the reward? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers, there we go, will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? The lake of fire, right? We find out later in the, later in the book. So once again, conquering Conquering is necessary for eternal life. Here's a big theme of the book of Revelation. You must endure to the end to be saved. Of course, the New Testament says that all over the place, right? You must endure to the end to, to be saved. You must persevere to the end by God's grace. But it's the, those who endure to the end who will finally experience salvation. That's, that's what he's saying here. Okay, let's look at letter number three. Three, the church in Thyatira, because this is our longest one. So these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, that image is very important because we're going to see this church is compromising big time. And he says, I see what's going on. <laughs> and I'm pure, and, and I think there's an idea, and I'm going to crush sin in the community. So that description is important. But... This church isn't all bad, right? Verse 19, encouragement. I know your works. That is your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. You're, you're improving. There's encouragement there. You know, that's, that's important to see, right? To see where good things are happening and acknowledge it. But he says, but I have this against you. So here comes the complaint, right? You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So, so we all agree, right? Her name wasn't really Jezebel. <laughs> that's, a, that's symbolic, right? We, we're going back into the Old Testament. And, but what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the sin of these people? 
too tolerant. There's a kind of tolerance that's unbiblical, right? There's, there's a kind of tolerance that, that, that uh, claims it's loving, but it's not loving. And that's what's going on here. She calls herself a prophetess. She says, I'm speaking God's word to you. But she's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual sin and to eat food sacrificed to idols, sexual sin and idolatry, right? Which is very common in the Greco-Roman world, right? There's many pagan temples. Eat, eating eating uh, food sacrificed to idols in and, and pagan temples is idolatry, and Christians are never to do it, right? That's the consistent message of the New Testament. That's the consistent message of the early church, right? The early church was unanimous. You, you, do, you do not eat food sacrificed to idols. That, that's idolatry. But there, there, are, there are great pressures today, you know, in, uh, at least where I live, there's not many pagan temples, but that's not a great, there, there are temptations to idolatry, but clearly there are great temptations to, to compromise on sexual morality. And churches do it, right? Churches do compromise. They can compromise on the standards of, uh, of what marriage is, right? There can be compromises in that area. Churches can close their eyes when couples are living together before marriage, contrary to Scripture, and uh, many other examples of this. Jezebel, this prophet, whatever her real name was, she, our God is a gracious God. I gave her time to repent. I didn't judge right away. That's true in our lives as well. I gave her time. But she refuses. She won't do it. So, so I'm, I'm going I'm to throw her onto a sick bed. They like bed, they'll get it. And those co who commit adultery with her, probably that's not literal adultery with her, right? That's probably talking about false worship, often in the Old Testament. False worship is called adultery, right? Spiritual prostitution, whoredom. And I'll throw her in the great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So I'm, let, I'm giving her a chance to repent. I'm giving you a chance to repent. So revelation, revelation is strong, isn't it? It's, Jesus says to the people, turn, turn from your sin, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know, because I have the flame of fire as eyes. I, the, I'm the one who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. So that's, that's a very strong warning. Compromise. That's, that's a temptation for all of us, right? To compromise with the truth in whatever area of life. But let us pray for each one of us that we will have the courage not to compromise, to fit in with the society in which we live and the world in which we live. But he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching... So there's some in Thyatira who are faithful. It's kind of a mixed church, isn't it, in terms of what's happening, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. And I think that's literally, there's a lot of debate on that, but I think that's what they were saying. I think she said, look, I understand the things of Satan. You know, just trust me. I've, I've got, I'm, I'm the prophetess. I, I can tell you what's going on here. So they call it the deep things of Satan. He goes, don't follow this false teaching. Don't give yourself to it, there, there are people who follow false teachers because false teachers can be very confident, but still wrong. He says, hold fast what you have until I come, right? And the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. I think that's a promise for all Christians who endure to the end. You will rule, you will rule with Christ, right? And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2. That's said of the Messiah. But we will rule with him. And we'll be given the morning star, which I think is Jesus himself. Okay, we'll do one more church, and then I'm going to do chapters 4 and 5. Let's do, let's do the last one. Let's do Laodicea. Because we haven't done a church. You know, we've done a church. We've done the two churches that are compromised. We did one church, Smyrna, that no complaint. Now we have a church, no encouragement, right? To the, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, 
They're not the faithful and true witness, are they? The beginning of God's creation. That's a, that's a, that's a sort of difficult line. I, I, I understand that to mean he is the creator of, of the world, right? So it, it, depends the, it depends on how you interpret that. It could refer to Jesus as the, uh, the beginning of the new creation. But here comes the encouragement. I know your works. Whoops. You are neither cold nor hot. Cold's good. Cold water's good, right? Refreshing. I think you might need that here in Abu Dhabi sometimes, that cold water. Hot water's good, right? Tea, coffee, hot showers. But you're not cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so I'm, I'm arguing both cold or hot are, are, are good. By the way, many people argue, you know, that they, they piped water in to Laodicea, and by the time the water got there, it was lukewarm. So, you know, I don't think that interpretation is right. Um, by my commentary, <laughs> you can read what I say there. I don't have time to get into it here. But I, I think it's been shown archaeologically that actually that's not a convincing reading, but a lot of people believe it, and maybe it's right. It doesn't, it doesn't really change the meaning in, in either case, I don't think. The problem is they're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, and I will, I think spit is way too uh, tame here. I will vomit you, I think he's saying. I will vomit you out of my mouth. I'm, I'm going to reject you. I think this is eternal. He's not saying, you know, this is just a little problem. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, he's saying, because you're lukewarm. For you say, you guys are really happy with yourself. I'm rich, I prospered, I need nothing. But you don't know that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And therefore, you need help. You need to turn. I'm not going into all these in detail because of time. You, you, you need to be zealous and repent and turn from your sin, or you're going to be vomited out, which I think means you're not going to be saved. Now, I'm not, I'm not teaching people are going to lose their salvation. People immediately ask me that. But, but here, let's just hear the warning, right? Now, I, I believe our theology is coher coherent and it, and it fits together. But there's a danger when we come to a text like this to immediately deflect it, you know, because that warning is there. I'm going to vomit you out if you don't repent. That's what it says. Now, I think there's a good theological explanation for that, but I'm not going to get into it right now. Um, all the professors here will solve all the problems that I raise later. <laughs> Just talk to them. So, but I, I think it's coherent, and they, I trust them all. They're wonderful. So he says, right, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's, he's talking to Christians, right? He's talking to the believers. I'm knocking on the door. You, you need to hear my voice and open the door, and I'll come into him and eat with him. You'll, you'll enjoy the Messianic feast. By the way, is it, is it okay to apply that to non-Christians? Of course. Of course. That's fine. It's fine. That's a good application too, right? It's not wrong to apply it to non-Christians. I have no problem with that. To, but, but in its historical context, he's speaking to the believers, and he's saying, you guys have shut the door on me. You need to open the door. This is, this is really important. You need to conquer to sit on my throne, right? You, you need to hear the message. So, so, so you see, what, you know, the message we see in Revelation is a very challenging one, isn't it? To wake up churches that were becoming lax, mainly, and were compromising. And we're like, it's fine, it's fine. And Jesus is saying, it's not fine, it's not fine. You need to turn around. Now, he encourages them as well. Okay, so now we come to verse, chapters 4 and 5. And we'll, we'll have a break after we look at these chapters. These chapters are very important. Chapter 4, worship God as the creator. Chapter 5, worship Christ as the redeemer. So let's, let's look at chapter 4. I, after I, this, I looked, it's a vision, and a door is standing open in heaven. By the way, there's not really doors in heaven. Um, so this is symbolic language, right? It's a way of saying I'm receiving a heavenly vision. And the first voice 
which I heard speaking, said, come up here and I'll show you what will happen. At once I was in the spirit, the spirit of revelation again, right? As we saw in chapter one. And, and what does he see? He sees a throne in heaven. That word throne occurs again and again and again in Revelation, sig signifying what? God's sovereignty. He rules, right? He sees a throne. And one seated on the throne, that's God, right? And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So, so here's the picture of God, right? But it's symbolic. And he describes God in terms of beautiful stones. Why? I mean, be, because God is finally indescribably beautiful. So he picks something from the created world that is beautiful, stones, right? Jasper, carnelian, the rainbow, emerald. And he says, this, this is, this is uh, analogous to what God is like. Of course, far beyond the beauty of any stones, but God is ineffably beautiful and glorious beyond our ability to describe him. So, uh, we, we, you know, the scripture can't give us a literal picture of God because that's, he's beyond our comprehension, isn't he? So, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads, from the throne, and, and so who are these, who are these 24 elders? That's very debated. I believe, uh, yeah, I can, I just, I don't have time to get into all the views. I believe that the 24 elders are angelic beings of some kind, but I think they represent the people of God, right? The, and you think of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the, the elders, I think, are angelic, but they're also representing in the throne room they're representing God's people as well as, as angels, which maybe is connected with the angels of the churches, perhaps. But no, that's, that is, uh, that is uh, controversial, right? They, the, the, the angel, I think these angels have white garments and golden crowns because they're, they're, they're God's agents. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. What's going on in the throne room? A massive thunderstorm. It's absolutely terrifying, right? It's beautiful, but it's scary. It's, you know, the thunder is just crashing and lightning and thunder and lightning and thunder because God is glorious and beautiful and amazing, right? So what's going on in this room? It's, it's symbolic. I don't think he's saying there's literally a thunderstorm going on in heaven, right? Uh, but it's real. How do, you, how do you describe the indescribable? Use images, right, and pictures. So that's what he's doing. And so, uh, where are we? And then there's seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So I think, again, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the purity of the Spirit, right? The fire, fire offering represents God's presence as well. So uh, we're not surprised that the Spirit of God is present. And before the throne there wa was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And then, very fascinating, right? Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are these very strange creatures, these four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the king of the beasts, right? The second living creature like an ox, the king of the domestic animals. The third living creature with the face of a man, human being. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, the king of the birds, so to speak. Now, now this is, this is, this is very strange stuff. These four living creatures have six wings and they're full of eyes. So again, John always brings us back to the Old Testament and that anybody who knows the Old Testament thinks is immediately of Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. And we're told in Ezekiel, these are cherubim, right? These four living creatures. So again, I think they're angelic and angelic beings. And, and uh, you know, John tweaks, tweaks what we have in Ezekiel a little bit, like he often does. It's not a, he doesn't exactly say what is found in Ezekiel, but he, he tweaks it and adjusts it a little bit. We, we won't get into those details. We don't have to. But, but, I, but I think the point what are, what are these creatures doing? 
I, I think John is saying if the 24 elders represent the saints, the four living creatures, so to speak, oversee all of creation, right? The lions and oxen and human beings and eagles, they oversee the created world for God, and they have eyes all around. They're, they're God's eyes and ears, so to speak, right? It's, I, I, again, it's just a picture of that, the ruling uh, the world for God. And, and, and then emerges the picture in Ezekiel 1 and 10 with what the seraphim say in Isaiah chapter 6, right? He, can, he, he puts them together in a very interesting way because what are these angels saying? Well, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Just the same thing the seraphim say in Isaiah 6. So this God who sits on the throne who is ineffably beautiful, and there's a thunderstorm in the room and these attendants upon him, however you understand them, he is, he is awesomely beautiful and holy and glorious. So it's not surprising that the living creatures give glory, verse 9, and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. So they're, they serve the Creator, and they love the Creator, and they honor the Creator. And of course, that's what we're called to do too. And the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns because all their rule belongs to God, and all our rule belongs to God. And they say, you are worthy, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you're the creator of everything. You, you, you are the sovereign God, so you deserve all worship and praise and honor forever and ever. That's chapter 4, right? That informs the whole book. A church that's suffering, a church that's going through hard times, a church that's experiencing compromising. What is John saying? God rules. God is the, God is the creator God. Don't forget God in the midst of your suffering. Hey, I'm tempted to forget Him, aren't you? We forget. That's why we need God's Word. Chapter 5, got to do this fast. Uh, Christ as Redeemer. Then we're still in the throne room. At the right hand of Him who's seated on the throne was a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So, you know, the, the, the number seven in the scroll here is important. A mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy? Remember what they just said to the one seated on the throne? You are worthy. Same word. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And John tells us no one in heaven. He slows down this narrative. Do you see that? Slows it down. No one. Because he could have just said, well, we know, the Lamb's worthy, but he stops, right? Slows, slows down the story. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No angel, no human being, no one, no one can do this. And I began to weep loudly. Why, why does John tell us that? Because, because opening the scroll, it's no light thing, right? This is not, this is not just... Uh, this is the most massive question in the universe. Can anybody open the scroll? And we look at all the human beings who've ever lived and all the angels, and no one can do it, right? That's a big problem. So John weeps and weeps because no one was found worthy, there's the word, right, to open the scroll or even to look at it. So dramatic effect right? He, he's, he slows down the story. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, right? Other Old Testament passages. The root of David, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that we see over and over, so many passages in the Old Testament. He's conquered I think that's very interesting, that word, because what did he say to the churches seven times? You have to conquer, conquer, conquer. But he conquers first, right? We conquer only because he conquered. Our conquering comes from his conquering. 
His conquering is the fundamental conquering. He's conquered. He's won. He can open the scroll and it's seven seals. He's strong. He's mighty. He's a lion. He can do it. Uh, but then what? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, when he looks, he's told about a lion, right? He's told about a lion. But when he looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. So significant, isn't it? And he sees the lamb standing. Why is he standing? Because he's risen from the dead. He's standing. He, he's a ruling lamb, but he's standing as though it had been slain because the lamb was slain, right? This lion conquered as a lamb, and he conquered through suffering, through the cross, right? So sometimes people say, Ah, I don't want to study Revelation. It's so weird. And I say, yes, it's so weird because it has things in it like God's the creator. Never read that before in the Bible. Christ is the great redeemer, right? Revelation is about what we read elsewhere in the Bible. This is not really a different book. It has a different presentation, genre, imagery, but it's, it's the same stuff. Why does, why does he write it this way? To appeal to our imaginations, right? To stimulate our thinking. It's a different, a different genre of literature. Poetry strikes you different than a narrative. This apocalyptic appeals to our imagination, doesn't it? So there's the lamb. He has, he, he has, he's been slain, but he has seven horns and seven eyes. Literally? No, the seven horns. He's, he's perfect in power, perfect in omniscience, right? And then he tells us, they are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So I want to argue there, he's the lamb, the lamb who is exalted. And as the exalted lamb, what does he do? He sends out the spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent. Because when Jesus is exalted, the spirit goes out, right? There we have it. Beautifully presented. He takes the scroll. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The prayers are answered. And they sang a new song. Worthy, worthy. There's our word. Worthy are you to take the scroll. Just as God is worthy, you're worthy to take it and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And by your blood, it's the cross, isn't it? By the blood, you ransomed, you, you liberated you purchase people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. An amazing promise. It's fulfilled in this room, isn't it? That's amazing. How many, how many different nationalities are in this room? We don't have time to find out, right? But a lot, right? And you have made them a kingdom. Fulfilling the original purpose made for Adam and Eve, right? And priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We will solve once and for all what it means to they shall reign on the earth during the panel. You'll have no more questions. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, but that there is the cross. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy, there it is again, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive, now I think this is important, see what you think, one power, two wealth, three wisdom, four might, fifth honor, six glory, seven blessing. I don't think it's an accident that he says seven things. He loves the number seven. It's not always seven, but I don't think that's an accident. He is fully worthy as the second person of the Trinity, as the Lamb who was slain as well, right? To receive worship. Now, when it says to receive wisdom, we ought not to say, oh, he didn't have wisdom before. What, when we worship, we ascribe to God what is already his, right? So we're not saying he's receiving it, but he didn't have it. He didn't, he, no, no, this is, this is a wisdom he already possessed. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to, the, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. To, the, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I mean, could it be any clearer that Jesus is fully God? 
He's put right on the same level with God. It's amazing. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and they worshiped. There's, there's the function of worship. Now, now, now here's the point, right? This is the key to the whole book. This is the key to the whole Christian life. God is the sovereign creator, but Christ is our great redeemer. That, that, that's what Revelation is about. Right? That's why we should preach it. Revelation isn't fundamentally about a prophecy chart, is it? It's about the very center of the Christian gospel. Well, let's pray, because I, I actually went a little longer than I should have. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how powerful and beautiful and wonderful it is because you are powerful and wonderful and beauty, beautiful and holy and infinite. And we worship you, Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.